That's a very big hello, a bigger hello than normal for some reason to Stephen Cooper on the governance update from VLGA Connect. Hi, Steve. Hi, Chris. I'm not sure why I warrant a bigger hello than normal, but hello back at you. I just felt this big hello coming out of me. Um, so, you know, take it in the spirit in which it's intended. I'm eternally grateful. <laughs> uh, we have a lot to talk about this week. I know we say that a lot, but we do have a lot. So we might not do justice to all of it. Um, we might not. We might not do might justice not to any, do of, any it. of it. <laughs> but let's let's have a go. Firstly, we'd like to note the the new uh, appointment of a chief municipal inspector in Victoria. I, I thought the, the the language in the official release was interesting, Steve. Uh, but understandable, it's about holding the sector to account and upholding standards, etc. But we're very pleased to finally have this appointment because it's been. Uh, it's been vacant for a while, in the sense that the permanent appointment's been pending for a while, and John Lynch has done a terrific job as the as the acting. Um, but I guess he's probably pleased that there's some certainty now with Michael Stefanovic AM coming into the role very soon. And I echo your comments regarding uh, John Lynch, uh, Chris. The uh, the interactions we've had with John have been extraordinarily professional, and shown a diligence to the task. Uh, Michael Stefanovic, I am extraordinarily well qualified for the role. And uh, apropos of your comment, I'd just like to think that uh, that appointment really should instill Victorians with uh, continued confidence in the integrity agency. Absolutely right. I, I think it's it's a really interesting appointment and uh, and a terrific appointment on on paper. I don't know Michael. I do hope to to get to meet him before too long. But a strong background. 35 years, started in Victoria Police. So I guess it's a bit like coming home to a role in uh, in Melbourne like this. He's been overseas investigating uh, and uh, dealing Crimes. with corrupt. Y- yes. Yeah. Um, uh, and, and currently, or up until this appointment, has been with the COVID-19 Quarantine Victoria organisation. So a really interesting background. Yeah, and I think in that sense, Chris, um, and in terms of a global pandemic generally, not this is not a comment about government policy, but um, managing compliance in a in a chaotic environment, I suppose, uh, um, should prepare Michael well for the, for this role. Yes, indeed. So we welcome him. We wish him all the best. We don't know when he starts. That is as yet to be determined, as I understand it. But rest assured, as soon as he does, he'll be getting an invitation to appear on VLGA Connect. <laughs> Stay tuned to LGA Connect, Chris. And uh, as you said, we've been so uh, uh, lucky to have uh, John Lynch join us a number of times on some of our panel sessions, particularly in the lead up to the council elections last year. Always very obliging, he he and his staff, I must say. And uh, I'm not sure what's next for John, but we wish him all the best as well. I echo that, Chris. John um, has been extraordinarily uh, cooperative and giving in terms of the interactions where the VLGA have had with him. So, um, yeah, good wishes to John. Another, uh, I guess, integrity agency uh, flavour to this next story. So the Victorian Auditor General has released a report into the way councils manage their road responsibilities. Now, as I understand it, five councils were audited, but all councils participated in a survey, and this has resulted in 10 recommendations to all councils about how they manage their road networks. Yeah, um, particularly valuable road networks too, Chris, if you look at the balance sheets um, of councils 
assets and the value of those assets under management. Um, a couple of things that struck me about that report. Um, one was uh, I really love the approach by Vago of um, selecting a number of councils for um, more detailed audit, but going out and collecting data across the whole of the state really, uh, really gives a lot of rigour to their findings. I suppose, Chris, um, how do I say this? There is no surprise that the Auditor General would come back and talk to the quality of data that is held by councils and the utility of that data and the fact that, you know, road management ought to be a whole of life uh, exercise in relation to interventions with those assets. I thought the surprising part was the, which actually oughtn't be surprising, was um, the recommendation that... Um, councils actually do some more um, uh, user consultation to get some richer data about what the community need from particular roads. Probably no real surprises here, Steve. Uh, I, I probably could have predicted that was what they were going to find. This is an extremely complex and difficult to manage area. In a rate-capped environment, it's probably become even more challenging for councils to put the resources to this task, and it's not the only complex task and asset base that councils have to manage. 87% of the state's roads are under management by local councils. So it's a, it, yeah. it's a huge deal. And obviously, community expectations, as you say, uh, talking to the community, very important, the expectations the community has of the roads that they use on a daily basis are, you know, they should be paramount. Oh, absolutely. And Chris, um, look, let's leave urban roads aside for one for one moment, but we know that like rural roads, the, the, the pressure on rural councils, rural and regional councils to manage their road networks is extraordinary. Um, and the interesting thing about consultations, um, we know that at certain times of the year, some of the unsealed roads get um, extraordinary corrugations. Uh, no one wants to drive over that. And the interesting thing, I sort of the complexity about some of this consultation is no one's going to ask or or come back into consultation and say they're happy to, a to have a lower quality of road, True. but the upgrading of roads brings further maintenance obligations. So it, you know, it becomes a challenging consultation process. Very true. So that, that report is there for all to see. We have uh, extended an invitation to Andrew Greaves to come on VLGA Connect to talk in more detail, as he has done about previous audits. So uh, I expect we'll be speaking with him uh, very soon, but well done to them for releasing that. And it's a good read for anyone, particularly if you come from that uh, that engineering infrastructure um, road maintenance uh, field in uh, in local government land. Oh, but uh, that said, Chris, I think you touched on it earlier. It's an asset management topic. Um, so councillors, executives across the organisation, uh, a range of stakeholders and Andrew, again, being really cooperative and giving of his time. So that's terrific. It would be great. And I know it's unlikely if more community members uh, took the time to read these types of reports to understand better what councils are dealing with, with these sorts of challenges. I know they won't. It's about the, you know, the, the road you last drove on and whether you were happy with that experience or not. But as I said at the outset, it's a very complex issue. But I do recommend it. Thank you, Steve. Now, next is uh, something that caught my eye, and that is the new flexible working policy in the Victorian public sector. So you'll recall, I think I'm right in saying when Adam Fennessy was back as, uh, as a, a secretary in the department, uh, the all roles flex policy uh, came out, uh, which was pretty forward thinking, I think, for its time. That's sort of been replaced necessarily now with this post-COVID 
policy, which will see public servants now, uh, I think the idea is three days a week in the office, two days a week at home, give or take. And I see also there was a rather excellent article about this in the Mandarin during the week, Chris, which I believe you saw. Um, I believe also that the state government is establishing a series of uh, regional hubs, um, particularly around the metropolitan area, um, that will enable um, public servants to, uh, on their three days, to attend the hubs and not necessarily go into the main office because, of course, we've got the technology now uh, where people don't need to work at a particular desk. So um, far greater flexibility there. But, of course, the other part is, um, as I'm advised, that what that also requires is that even staff going into the office can't leave anything at work. So... (laughs) we might be doing some aerobics or Pilates or something like that because um, we'll have public servants having to have backpacks and, and carry anything that they are taking to work to or from the office. And thought about that angle. That's an interesting one, Steve. I think from a local government perspective, it's worth taking a look at this policy. It's not necessarily, it doesn't apply to councils, but every council is grappling with the same issue. And then in, in the interest of not reinventing the wheel, uh, this would, I think, be a really good input for the conversations that council managements across the state are having with staff about how do we manage uh, requirements and expectations coming out of COVID. Well, we should be looking outside our own sector at what other organisations are doing, Chris. Um, Chris, can I give listeners fair warning of a point that we make occasionally, and that is that it would be unwise to accept legal advice from us. <laughs> <laughs> There are people far more qualified. Um, and with that disclaimer, though, I think we've spoken before. Are you we about are... to offer some? Is that, I, I, I'm pretty <laughs> no, sure I didn't. No, I'm about to just raise some issues, I, I right. suppose, on this, Chris. Okay. That, you know, there is an expectation for an employer of choice to be flexible. Um, it, my non-legal brain tells me that on the 31st of March, the Gender Equality Act will come into effect. And so whatever... Um, actions are taken in the workplace in regard to staffing arrangements need to have a gender lens and maybe there's some opportunities uh, within a gender equality framework to to look to to more flexible working arrangements. I think the other thing, Chris, is that we're coming into a time where, um, and we've spoken earlier, where there will be two classes of people, those who are vaccinated and those who aren't. And I I don't have the detail, but I know that there is a bit of preliminary legal advice floating around about the role of employers, um, the rights of employers to require that people be vaccinated or not. Um, And there's also going to be that human dynamic of those who are vaccinated and those who aren't having certain expectations in the workplace. And we haven't even started on the impacts there in terms of clients who may or may not be vaccinated. So we're entering into a really um, interesting time in the workplace. And I suppose uh, where flexibility can be offered up safely and deliver better outcomes for community or to be looked at seriously. Gosh, you've opened a can of worms there. We might just let that one sit there for the moment. Let it just uh, uh, ferment. And perhaps we can come back to that in a, in a more detailed discussion at some point. Yeah. Um, the next one on my list, Steve, I don't think we're going to have time to do much with this, but um, and, and it's possibly also an upcoming VLGA Connect uh, in-depth discussion. But another that caught my eye this week was a report from AHURI. Um, now, I forgot what that stands for, but it's it's Housing and Urban... Housing, Housing and Urban Research Institute. That's I, it, thank you. URI. 
Thank you. And they've done a report on metropolitan governance entities, how they intersect with local government, how effective they are. This is right across the country. I zoned right in on the Victorian piece, which I thought they got spot on, by the way. Um, so, you know, it, it really does encapsulate the country. From you? <laughs> and it, it, it encapsulates, thank you, Steve, encapsulates the current state of play with metropolitan partnerships and the VPA and, you know, the relationship with Plan Melbourne and where councils fit into that. Um, I haven't got to the point of being able to extract any really sharp sort of aha moments or insights, but that's because I haven't read the whole thing yet. But I did want to point to it, and I'm not sure if you've had a chance to look at it, Steve. I think it's a really interesting piece of work. I was a bit like you, Chris. I've done a, a skim, and I love the fact that there are. It goes into some detail of um, major urban centres and some regional areas, and the arrangements, the regional planning arrangements uh, between state and local government, with not only um, urban, you know, land use planning, but but service planning as well. Um, so very thorough. I thought, yeah. to the extent that I looked at it, Chris, it raises some really interesting um, philosophical questions about. Um, the significance of local government as a player in um, in regional planning in its broadest sense, but that at the same time, uh, local government often doesn't have the constitutional or statutory recognition um, to be involved in those pro projects. And right across the nation, um, state governments can tend to bypass or um, give sort of cursory attention to the role of local government in those processes which, you know, raises some sort of interesting tensions, I suppose. It does. So perhaps that's another one we can come back to, but we point people to that report if they'd like to uh, to delve into that a bit uh, a bit deeper. It is a research report. It's uh, You probably need a bit of peace and quiet and a good strong cup of coffee to start wading into it. It doesn't run to hundreds of pages, Chris. No. I think, think the key document was something in the order of 40 or 50 pages. Not, you know, so... Not a difficult time. And I think Googling A-H-U-R-I, um, you'll find the homepage and it's one of the more recent reports. Good tip. That's Steve Cooper's web tip for this week. Now, um, on, the, on the people note for this week, uh, I want to pay tribute to Tony Doyle, the CEO at Knox City Council, who has in the past week announced his intention to step down at the end of his contract, which is coming up in early July after five years at Knox. He was at Hindmarsh Council before that. Nice fellow, Tony. I know I say that about all the CEOs <laughs> that we've been talking about lately, but they really are a great bunch of people in Victorian <laughs> CEO land, I have to say. Chris, I've been lucky enough to do some work with Tony and the Knox Council over um, recent months, and um, I echo that and um, and wish Tony well in whatever he chooses um, to do post the uh, the end of his contract with the council. Indeed. Now, Tony is not the only one who's making a decision about, you know, end of contract coming up and perhaps time to do something else or look further afield. Um, my mail has another couple in the wind. I'm not prepared to reveal who they are just yet until there's something more official, but stay tuned. Chris, the, you're fishing for ratings. I <laughs> the list, yes, yeah, stay tuned. The list, uh, Steve, though, I have at the moment of confirmed and unfilled on a permanent sense CEO roles is at 13. Your list is the same as my list, Chris, because I rely on your list. So thank you. <laughs> I've got to triple check it. Um, but there's some on there that have been vacant or have had interims or actings in place 
for some time. And of course, we've had an election, but I'm expecting you would expect a bit of a flurry of appointment news in the in the weeks ahead. So stay tuned. We'll have that info here as soon as well. As soon at as least we're able. guaranteed we'll have something to talk about, Chris. That'll be good. Absolutely. Before yeah. I let you go, um, looking at the calendar, the window for induction of new councils is fast closing. I think come May, that six-month window in a legislative sense uh, expires. Uh, you've been doing a lot of work with councils around the induction. How do you feel they're all um, set, prepared? Chris, I've felt really privileged to work with a number of council groups across the state um, through that through that process. In fact, Tony Rownich from Hunt and Hunt and I journeyed down actually just remotely to um, Bairnsdale and did a Zoom session during the week uh, with the East Gippsland councillors. Um, my sense is that in terms of uh, the statutory requirement to, to meet the, uh, the induction obligations under the, uh, under the regulations, most councils are getting pretty close to the end. What we're actually seeing now is councils looking at areas where there is either an interest or an identified need to drill in further. Um, so we've already had a couple of councils um, ask us to come back and do work around, for example, um, conflict of interest, um, confidentiality, et cetera, where um, the 2020 Act is, is less prescriptive than, uh, than the previous Act. Um, so there's been a bit of that. And also um, we've been lucky enough to work with one council and done extra workshops around mock council meetings, um, really to help um, to help councillors to not be frustrated with what happens in meetings because um, a well-run meeting is, I think, a, a, a yardstick, uh, a litmus test. Let's mix our metaphors um, for a well-functioning council. I think it's great that you're doing that, Steve. It's one of the things that challenges new councillors in particular, this this very strange beast of meeting procedure and local laws and, you know, who can move, who can second, who can speak, who can amend, all, all that stuff that is a bit alien if you haven't been around. Yeah, yeah, and there's a real power dynamic that goes with that. There's kind of those who know how the rules work and those who don't. And, and you know, that doesn't set up the best dynamic for the councillor group. Not that you're suggesting the more experienced ones would use that knowledge to their benefit over and above the inexperienced <laughs> one, Steve, I'm sure. In the words of Max Smart, Chris, if only they used their powers for good instead of evil. No, but I wouldn't suggest that at all. <laughs> I think that's a good note to end on. Thank you, Steve. Thanks, Chris. Good to talk. Always good to talk and see you again for another governance update next week. Thank you for joining us on VLGA Connect. Hope to see you back soon. Bye for now.